All right. Hello, and welcome to the Elixir Roundtable with Dockyard. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm L. Imhoff. I'm a principal software engineer here at Dockyard, and on my lap today is my cat, Tempest. I'm Benny Rosas. I'm a software engineer at Dockyard doing Elixir and Phoenix, coming from a front-end background. My name is Mike Benz. I'm a staff software engineer here at uh, Dockyard doing Elixir. Hey, I'm Zach Bliss. I'm a senior software engineer here at Dockyard. Uh, not a camera day for me, but napping behind me in a basket is my cat, Mo. I'm Brian Cardarella. I'm the founder of Dockyard. Hey, I'm Christian Tovar, senior software engineer here at Dockyard, and I'm just enjoying weather here in Columbia. I am Andrew Varian. I'm an Elixir engineer here at Dockyard. I'm Chris McCord. I work on Phoenix sometimes, and I am an Ember evangelist. Try it out. You don't understand that that's actually relevant in that when that product came out, there were people not happy about the name. <laughs> they were like, I'm the tick of the name. Yeah. It, it, came, it came, comes with uh, Ember stickers and everything. It's pretty great. Yeah. For anyone who is on the audio-only version of this, that is a mug. <laughs> Yes, I thought about that, but then I was like, I'm still, it's, it's going to make it even better. <laughs> All right. So, Regina has the number of bugs. They're great. So, I'm Nathan Long. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. Uh, we've got a few different topics we want to talk about uh, today. Uh, one of them is a cool uh, project we're working on behind the scenes, which should be public before too, too long. Um, another is some work that we're hoping to do in open source. And uh, then we want to have a conversation about code quality tools and uh, maybe touch on some Elixir release, some recent Elixir language features. So uh, I'm going to hand it off to Mike first to talk about a project he's been working on. Yeah, well, actually, uh, Mike, do you want me to give yeah, the high level? Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, Mike's been doing the, the actual work. I just come up with great ideas that uh, Great being a very subjective term. All right, I come up with ideas, things. Anyway, so um, a couple, maybe actually at this point, last year or two years ago, I, I've lost track of time. Uh, in event of every, in a, in, uh, with everything going on, but um, I was on the Elixir Wizards podcast at some point, and at the end of the podcast, I think that they just have a uh, general question that they ask all their guests on, like, what is one thing that you wish you saw in the Elixir community? Um, and I had thought about this for a while, and so I brought it up that I would like to see a CMS built in live view, um, not necessarily from the page building side of things, but more from the content serving side of things. And uh, the, the value there, I think, is really, you know, who are using CMSs the most? It's primarily, uh, you know, they're very content heavy sites, and content heavy sites rely upon uh, PageRank and SEO. Um, and a lot of the performance and usability uh, uh, benefits that LiveView is providing um, are a lot of the same, you know, user benefits um, that progressive web apps provide. And these are uh, things that uh, uh, the Google crawler, you know, through Lighthouse ranking and such are taking in consideration for uh, as part of their page rank algorithm. Of course, we don't know, you know, how that breaks down, but we do know that um, application performance is part of it. And so our kind of position here at Dockyard is that live view applications are faster to write. Um, 
And uh, uh, we believe that we can offer a bit of a differentiator here in the space. Uh, and so um, no one kind of took up the cause of doing it, or there were some people that, you know, thought I meant one thing about a live UCMS and kind of went in a different direction. They wanted to provide like an API that any front end could then render out. I'm like, nah, that's really not, you know, other people have already done that. You know, what's, where's the value there? Um, I don't mind to discourage those, those uh, efforts, just that from what I would like to see is something that is kind of like full stack pure within, within LiveView. And uh, Mike um, offered to uh, allow Dockyard to buy back PTO time um, in order to work on this. Uh, Adam uh, at Dockyard, who's not on the call, he actually had started some of this a while back, uh, but he uh, he decided that he wants to focus on uh, his managerial career within Dockyard um, and the amount of time necessary to develop this. We needed you know, someone on it full-time for at least a period to kind of build out a proof of concept that this is you know not only possible, but is going to maintain the performance expectations um, that we have around it. So uh, uh, I guess back, I mean, this kind of came together pretty quickly. It must've been like mid-November or so when Mike approached me and said, hey, you know what? Um, I have all this uh, time off accrued. Uh, Dockyard wants to buy it back. I can work on the project. And so I said, yes. Um, and for the month of December, Mike's been working on implementing um, what has started out being called Live UCMS. Uh, we are, and by the time that hopefully uh, that uh, you see this video, we'll have renamed it Beacon. And by the end of December, we're going to be releasing, uh, opening up the project uh, open source be extremely early, like not really in a production consumable uh, state yet, but at least it's going to start to show you the the architectural concepts that we're heading towards. Um, so, Mike, do you want to kind of describe uh, at least some of the features you've been working on and the direction that you've gone with implementation? Um, uh, uh, I don't know if you feel comfortable showing off uh, code, but if you want to, you're, you know, good good for me. Good, good on my end to, to show stuff off if you want to. Um, yeah, so uh, probably not going to show off right now but um as far as the, the concepts uh the idea is is that um the core idea is to be dynamically loading uh or dynamically uh, loading into uh memory the uh peaks templates uh, is kind of the, the core uh overview of it and so the idea being that um if you wanted to um create a page, let's say, for example, you wanted to generate a blog, you want a blog and you want to design your blog however you want it, and then it'll drop in the content uh, on the fly, you can uh, edit uh, a, a non-Elixir person, uh, you know, just on a, through the web, web interface could generate a, create a template somehow. And then we take that template and we dynamically load that into memory. And then that that template can then run with uh, data on the fly. So you've got uh, you you're basically speeding up the the rendering time by having pre-compiled templates uh, being run. So that's that, I mean that that at its core that's that's the that's kind of the magic, um, and that's kind of been split out to being able to have a, a, a dynamically uh, loaded uh, layout. Uh, so from the top level of the the live. Um, uh, the live layout, uh, it's going to, uh, you, you, based on which site you're on and which page you're on, you have a different layout. Uh, and then you can have different page content. And that, that page content 
it would, like I said, it would support both um, pre-compiled uh, template stuff. So that that stuff's going to be uh, as fast as if you had written the the templates yourself uh, in 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 your project. Um, and then it'll also allow you know assign live assigns on the fly uh, at render time. So, so the um, where the 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 kind of page entry at right now is very you know early stage in the sense that Mike just has you know here's a text area and you know it saves it to the given URL. Um, where we're kind of iterating towards is uh, getting to a place where. Uh, uh, content creators are not really going to have to even understand what Heeks is or, you know, really get down into the nitty gritty. They're going to be do, doing everything through a UI, uh, connecting data sources for a given page, um, and then basically being able to drag and drop UI elements uh, into that page, building it up, um, referencing out to live view components. And, you know, there's some security considerations there with uh, executing uh, live view code within the Heeks template. And so we have some ideas on how to write a DSL in order to uh, you know, basically prevent any type of um, uh, remote code execution that, that wasn't intended. Um, and uh, it's, it's looking pretty good so far. Like Mike was able to take the existing dockyard.com and take uh, the HTML from the landing page. And I, did you do the blog page too, or just the landing page? Uh, just the landing page right now. Yeah, just the landing page. And was able to take that and uh, render it in this fashion. So um, it's, you know, I'd say the current state of it is it's moved the template creation over to uh, a UI as opposed to templates being packaged within the uh, app code itself. And that's kind of the first step. And the next step is now providing an interface for us to be able to uh, quickly build up uh, templates, uh, Heeks templates. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I think that this is gonna be a, a pretty cool project if, um, if is provided if we can get the, the UI uh, right. Um, I, I've done a little bit of research in this because Dockyard is in the midst of its own website redesign. And uh, we looked into a few different options. Most uh, CMSs out there tend to lean one direction or the other. They're very, you know, geared towards marketing content creation, or they're kind of more like the traditional blog post uh, creation. And we have some ideas on how we can actually support uh, not just both lanes, but also you know custom lanes in terms of how skilled are your content creators. If you have uh, you know uh, someone that is just you know is accustomed to more traditional CMS page creation, we'd be able to support that and potentially down to the level of more power users that are looking to do a little bit more functionality. Nice thing too with um, with the live view is that uh, we going to be able to support like real-time data updates uh, within the page rendering as well. And this, this is going to come about through the data source uh, API. And right now it's a very early stage where we just kind of, you know, hook up, you know, this is kind of like the interface through which we get data from the database, but um, we could be at a place hopefully within a few months where we're able to essentially, uh, uh, you know, have real-time data pushed to each of the live view uh, project clients uh, for rendering out on the client. Uh, sorry, within the um, within the browser client. Uh, so there are some things afoot, and I've actually been really impressed with uh, 
you know, the pace at which Mike's been working. Um, I, uh, I, we were talking about this the other day, like some of the uh, just design decisions behind LiveView actually made the pace of this work you know, pretty quick, I feel. I don't know if Mike feels that way, but I feel like it's gone pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's been good. It's um, some of the, some of the, I mean, the core module loading actually is something that I uh, came from the Cobalt to Elixir work that I've been doing. And so that, like that, that was actually part of probably this, the easiest part is, is actually loading the, uh, swapping new code in. Um, but yeah, the, the, the design stuff around, around the layouts and everything and the components. So for example, you know, right now I said, it, we support layouts, pages, and components, and so the uh, you know the, the front page of the of dockyard has um, it's it's a page with a layout. But then at the bottom there's or towards the bottom there's three the top three blog posts show on the on the homepage. And so the the demo or the the proof of concept now is actually going out live to the dockyard API and pulling the t whatever the current top three are. And injecting those in uh, using components, so it's yeah, it's it's uh, being able to work off of the live view stuff has made it much easier. Yeah, I don't know if you mentioned this when you're describing the kind of the architecture a few minutes ago, but um, you know, we'll just reemphasize that these are actually compiled templates too. We're compiling them at runtime. Um, the mod, the custom modules for each uh, for the site, and then the the functions uh, for the URLs are pattern matching upon the path. And uh, we're going through a, you know, the normal template compilation. Um, we're just doing it at runtime as opposed to boot time. And uh, page updates, you know, are properly recompiling uh, the, the, the correct content. Um, and then, you know, if there's any URLs that change, we are unloading uh, those compiled functions out of the, yeah. the memory. To be clear, that's not when you say runtime. It's not actually it's not render time. It's pre. So when you if someone goes in and edits a page and saves it, it then rerun it re uh, right. reloads that into memory. So at runtime yeah. or at render time, when when a page is requested, it, it it's as though someone had actually written that template as a heaps file and uh, and passed and and compiled the whole project. So uh, L has a question. At a Cold boot, do you have to like load all the templates from yes. a database? So, you, so yes. you're not planning to write the beam files to disk so that cold boot is faster. Correct. Uh, it, I mean that that if that's a if that's a useful feature, we can look into that. But but as it starts now, there's a, a, a gen server in the application tree that um, that reads up, reads all like said the layouts, the pages and components out of the database and uh, loads loads those modules. Mm -hmm. Nathan, I had a hand up, but it went away. Was that the same question, Nathan? Yeah, I was. I, I was uh, yeah, basically the same question. I'm. I didn't realize uh, how much was involved in this. I was thinking in terms of, uh, you know, like, I guess I just didn't really consider like users creating their own templates and then having to compile that and store that in the database. Like, that's that's really impressive that that's working so far. I mean, it went. I, Mike had that done within like what two or three days. I mean, that was. One of the first things you did, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was it was pretty simple to give given given uh, you know a string just load that in as a as a heaps tape template. Yeah. L. How are you planning to handle like that? The template could break because you update the component. 
you so know, like you that's yeah, versioning components. That that's actually something we talked about the other day. So right now, uh, for the feature, and we you know for those not at Dockyard, we bike shed about uh, versioning just pages in general the other day. And part of that deeper conversation between Mike and I was okay. Now we have components, and uh, the idea uh, was that you know we could have um, either components that are you know, stock components that come with the CMS or imagine, you know, we have, and this is going to go into conversation for the next round table, but imagine if we had like a tailwind um, component library that gets plugged into the CMS. And so now I want, you know, tailwind as my uh, design architecture and, you know, all these components are now available. But then if that gets updated and you import the new dependency, if the uh, components themselves change their API in any way uh, that could break template compilation. Um, we don't have a good solution for that just yet on how we're going to manage different versions of components, if they're even versioned in any way, or if, you know, it's kind of buyer beware. Uh, I mean, one thing that'll make that a little bit easier is, is the fact that when you go to make a change, we know right away if this isn't going to compile. So that will, right. um, you know, you can. I think, Nate, I think, uh, sorry, I think Nathan has his hand up. I think L mentioned, uh, I think L's, I, I'm speaking for her now, but I believe L's point is if the data is being pulled out of database of production, right? And, you know, it could work locally, but then if you go to deploy that updated component, maybe we don't have, you know, a you know, a, a mirror of the production database. And now, you know, particular templates failing in production mode. Yes, we're, we're aware of, you know, that. We just haven't figured out a solution for you. Um, Nathan? Another thing that makes this a really interesting technology for something like CMS is the, is the fact that the, um, the first page load within live view is going to be just static html so that's yeah you know the crawlability will be faster that. yeah initial paint will be faster than a client-side application yeah um, so we get and both i mean that's a nice thing you get benefits of both right yeah and another thing this may be an outdated comment i know a long time ago you know things like wordpress every time you load a blog post or something it's going to go hit the database and pull that out of the database uh I don't know if that's even the case with WordPress anymore, or if you if people typically use a caching layer in front of it or something. But uh, one of the things that occurred to me when I heard about this is it'd be really easy to have a uh, like a um, a cache with some kind of eviction strategy for the most right. you know the hottest posts that are being accessed. You just keep those straight in memory. You don't go to the database. That would be easy to do in Elixir. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of get a bit into uh, what data you want to be fresh all the time versus not. Like technically the templates themselves are cached in memory. It's just that they are not fully rendered templates. Like the data as implemented currently is still being fetched for the rendering of each individual page, which is no different as if you were to have a normally, like a normal live view page in Phoenix anyway. Um, and, and so yes, there could be a potential if it's like a very content heavy page and we don't need, you know, the, you know, if we, don't believe like a blog post, for example, a blog post is not going to be updating very frequently. And if it does, you can just part of that update cycle, bust the cache. And then the next time it's faster, you can pre-cache it beforehand. Um, so there are other optimization uh, potentials that have yet to really be worked on. But I mean, as it is, 
I mean, Phoenix and Live View are already pretty performant. Yeah, and and there's it's interesting because there's actually there's two levels here. There's there's the templates that are being generated and pulled into code, which, like I said, are, are they're cached by the fact that they're they're in memory as as functions. Um, and then there's the the assigns that then get fed through that from you know from the data source on the fly. But one of the things you could do is actually on the blog itself, you know, you could have a a layout and a page that you have one and that's your blog that's your blog view page and you you stuff the data in for each of the blogs each time on render or you could actually if you have you know however many uh actual blog posts you could take that and generate that entire template or generate that entire page one per blog post and actually load that in as a as a peaks template itself and then you're basically you've got a single you know it, it, there is no on the fly data source loading uh so it, it'll be interesting to see where where we go with that as far as or what the options um or how people will use those options because like i said there's 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 that two le two levels of of how to look at it is is a blog post a static page that you you render the actual thing into a heat you know into a function or is it a template a single template for all your blog pages and then you just on the fly load the data in uh l uh, to address the, let's make it simple. Let's say on a component, you add a new required argument. All the templates that use it, potentially like, you know, years in the past are now broken. That's what I was worried about. And so what you could do, and this is like a really nice thing in, um, in IntelliJ is that when you change the, the signature of a Kotlin or a Java message like you don't have to say refactor change signature which is what you used to, have to do instead you change it and like it kind of knows you just made a signature change and so like this little pencil appears on the side you click it and it's like update all usages and fill in the values for me but what that also means is that you'll right now i'm assuming with your versioning you're like i changed the component i version the component or i change a page i version the page but this would involve doing an entire diff and like you're you have a change set not in the ecto sense but like that you both change the component and the pages together to keep it because you don't ever want to break a normal users users page you don't want them to have to rush because like what you don't want to do is you don't want the user that doesn't know about command f to like go through every single page open it up and like rewrite the page like you want the gui to do that for them as quickly as possible mm. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely so once once right now, actually, it, just to kind of get things going, we're versioning pages, and we made the decision for now that components, are, there's no version on components, it's just the component. Uh, so we can get the this proof of concept stuff out there. But yes, once we get into, you know, I most likely there'll be some sort of there'll be a component versioning uh, process. And, and when you request the component, you can request a specific version of it. But uh, then you've got a balance between well, do you want to force people to request a version or do we allow them to just say latest, but then they're going to break and then they're going to have to go back and you know update it if, if there's a new version that doesn't work with them or do we always ask them to specify a version and then they don't get new features without, you know, so you know, they almost get into kind of a semantic versioning of the uh, of the components. Um, but mm. 
yeah. Um, yeah. So Nathan's asking us to move along. I, I, uh, I think we should. I just want to close on one last uh, point regarding the project. Um, so uh, if anyone's watching this and they're interested in using it, maybe it's open source by the time you see this. Uh, just keep in mind that we are uh, things that are not part of the project are things like user access control, author authorization, authentication. Um, this is meant to be plugged into a uh, another Phoenix application um, and either, you know, a, a Greenfield app and all you have is a CMS and it's up to you to implement those other things or uh, you have a, you know, a, a product application and you need to manage some content marketing pages. Um, we are by design just focusing on the CMS page creation and management side of things. We're not, you know, trying to re-implement uh, any off stuff or anything outside of the, the scope of just the CMS itself. Anyway, Does this also right, address so, the, the WordPress problem of like a lot of WordPress sites kind of evolve into a full like real product, but they start <laughs> on the CMS? Uh, I mean, to a degree, I have thought that, uh, so a common um, evolution of CMSs is at some point, it's like, oh, I'm like one step away from the e-commerce site, right? And uh, I actually have, I, I all the values I mentioned for like content sites with LiveView, I think LiveView actually brings more value to e-commerce sites. I mean, there are plenty of case studies out there that show definitively that the less time it takes for users to navigate around an e-commerce site, the more likely they are. Well, what ends up happening is that users are more likely to spend money the more time they spend on your e-commerce site. And they're more likely to spend more time on your site if the pages are rendering uh, in a performant manner. And you know, with Amazon, that's not so much a concern there, but they're, I mean, Christmas time right now, I've found plenty of e-commerce sites out there that are just like nightmares to use. Um, and so th th while this is something I have in mind for uh, at some point, it is you know very, very far down the road, but I do think that there's value in leaving it kind of and building the beacon in such a way to allow for more functionality to be built on top of it. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, as it matures. That's really great. Um, Benny, do you want to pick up on talking about components and live view and Tailwind and all that cool stuff? Sure. So yeah, I'm building out um, an Elixir live view side project. And I just started having to nest a lot of components. And at the same time, reaching for Tailwind, I noticed Tailwind 3 has been released. So it's been it's been kind of a back burner idea to to set up um, kind of Phoenix templates with with Tailwind built in. One issue had been like trying to match perfectly what you currently get out of the box with the new Phoenix project in terms of all the CSS that's there. So with Tailwind, for those of you who haven't used Tailwind, one of the features of it, which is also a drawback, is that it's kind of um modular like you 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 get distances in your in your like grid layout or in your uh margins and paddings that are kind of like a pre-selected subset right it's not infinite possibilities like you can with css it's like do you want it to be two m's or three m's or five m's or ten m's or whatever and you, you have these kind of distinct 
mark marks that are pre-made for you and the idea is that you should use those most of the time but sometimes you don't want to and you have to do your own stuff and you want things to go in between um and in order to do that in tailwind before three you just uh create like custom rules for your iteration of tailwind in like a config file and then you can use those classes but with tailwind three you can actually just inject arbitrary um what do you call units in any tailwind rule it can be a color hex code or it can be a number of pixels or percent any valid css value really you can inject it right into the class using square brackets which um we can argue about like whether or not that goes against the whole purpose of tailwind but it makes it really easy to quickly replicate an existing set of styles in tailwind without building out a, a big config file that recreates a whole bunch of rules from scratch. So I was able to replicate all of the existing styles in Phoenix using Tailwind 3. And um, it seems to work pretty nicely. I'll, I'll hopefully be sharing that soon. But then we've just been kind of branching out of that conversation into what do we want a reusable component library to look like? Um, is it um, is it common enough to try to bake Tailwind in to Phoenix, or is that should that be up to to individual engineers if they want to use Tailwind or not? And I'll, also looking at like Surface UI, whenever you make a component library, I mean, there, there's always this dream, right? I've, I've everywhere I've worked has had the dream of like we want a shareable, reusable component library that everybody can use, which is an awesome idea. You know, and one of the problems that is, right? comes up is um implementation differs from from project to project from team to team you know you have there's to also make there's choices. also the the issue of i don't mean to kind of railroad but come on there's in. also the the next new shiny thing right yeah there's that problem <laughs> so but, engineers are like cats they're constantly reaching for the next thing right they're like oh you know we got to use tailwind um and i'm a fan of tailwind but i don't necessarily want to impose that you know and even within tailwind you have to make choices you have to say you know it, it, should this be a custom rule? Should it live in in a class right in the in the markup? Which, if you if you've seen Tailwind, you've seen these long strings of class names, right? Right in your markup, and you can you can abstract those out by giving it a name of whatever button primary and making a button primary component that then caps, encapsulates that long string of classes, so that you don't have to put it in your markup anymore. Well, now you've basically made something like a CSS class, right? And one reason we like Tailwind and not CSS is we don't have to like constantly come up with class names. Um, so it gets, even within the the choice of tools, there's still like a lot of decisions and a lot of implementations that might differ from team to team, some of which are based on taste and some of which actually have impact on like what what you can and can't do. So I don't have it. I don't obviously have the answers to that, but I'm curious what people think. And I'm also really curious about experience with Surface UI, which I haven't used yet, and how they might um how how they've implemented some of these things. So I can take it off there. So I think you mentioned a good point about like decisions. For me, Tailwind is amazing because of the decisions I don't have to make. Uh it's a very uh polarizing topic, and I think people that people that Judge uh, Tailwind haven't used it uh, by and large, but I think I'm getting an echo off someone. But 
Um, the nice thing about function components in LiveView is like you can have your shared component library and some of these polarizing topics go away because like your button is just a dot button tag in the markup. And however that's done, whether it's using like a bootstrap class internally, like button primary or, you know, class soup it is the consumer of that um, component is just going to write button. And one place in the app is going to specify whether it's button primary or, you know, focus ring outline one, you know, the ridiculous amount of tailwind classes. But um, I think for me, I'm, I'm hoping to get tailwind. Yeah, this is like, We'll see. This is this is gonna be polarizing, but I'm gonna try to get Tailwind into Unix 1.7 by default. Uh, if things work out as far as our live generators, uh, like if it's if things aren't too like class soupy. But uh, what we're seeing in the wild with function components is like we can apply uh, co-locate your classes, your Tailwind classes within the component definition in a single place in the app, and then the vast majority of your actual app UI you're building is not even touching Tailwind classes. SS classes. It's just like a modal tag or a button tag, and that's building whatever you need behind the scenes. So, so far, I'm thinking that we can end up with live generators that um, even if you don't want to use Tailwind, you just go to the single place that is implementing the modal or the button in your code, and you just replace it with bootstrap classes or what, or what have you. Uh, so, we'll see where it goes, but the, the big thing for me um, to get this into Phoenix was the requirement of no node and no npm and tailwind 3 just uh shipped a standalone tailwind css client uh with like pre-built binaries for every platform after um some um many uh pleases uh and, and thank yous from jose and, and myself and some other people on the internet uh, adam the creator of tailwind um was able to figure that out and ship um package binaries so now you could you can get tailwind out of the box in phoenix with no node or npm so I, I've mentioned this to Chris on several occasions. Um, I think that the, the nice thing we're starting to see with Phoenix is that it's really, you know, if you haven't felt it's there yet, it's really close to the point where quickly building out proof of concept applications is like well within its wheelhouse. Like I think people look at the power of Elixir and Phoenix and they're like, okay, you know, this is more on the production side of things. If I want to just spike something out, I'm going to use something quick and dirty. I mean, Phoenix is essentially there at this point. I mean, what we're really missing is more of these kind of community shared components so you can quickly drop in major pieces of functionality. But I mean, we're right on the precipice of having that anyway. Um, the, uh, uh, and so um, Nathan, this is, this is on, this is, you know, your thing, but I, I think as a company, we should probably be looking at doing another Phoenix Frenzy um, sometime in 2022 and kind of putting that theory to the test and seeing if we can, you know, really solicit some more community built applications and, you know, really showing off how quickly you can build up, uh, not just like simple apps, but, you know, fairly, you know, stuff that would, would take a significant amount of developer time in the past. Sounds fun. Zach has his hand raised. Yeah, I was, uh, well, I was just gonna say that I think one of the, things that I've become more mindful of as a programmer since like picking up and learning Elixir has been um, thinking about boundaries in applications and APIs and sort of like uh, who should know what and is this an implementation detail and, and those kinds of thoughts. Um, and 
when we're talking about these like you know functional components or, or components in the UI and how are how are these styles being applied, um, it feels like that those that those same kinds of thoughts start popping into my head. And I really like the idea. I like what Chris was saying. How you know it's it's just a modal or it's just a button. And really, um, underneath how those styles get applied is is an implementation detail that we're able to kind of abstract away um, if done properly. Um, so I think exploring that uh, sounds really interesting. And I think there's a lot of promise there. Yeah, I, I agree with that, especially when they are very small reusable things like buttons or even like pieces of um, pieces of table, table cells, for example. The one thing is that I, I would like there to be an easy escape hatch for swapping out Tailwind with something else or, or, or with nothing with custom CSS, right? Because, you know, you'll have designers and, and pre-existing um, branding and everything, style guides and so on. And someone, I don't, you know, want someone to look at Phoenix and say, oh, we can't use it because it's got all this stuff baked in and we don't want to fight against do you the mean, framework. Do you mean that if you swapped out another framework, the generator should support that other framework? No, I th I have a couple ideas of maybe where to do it. I mean, it would be kind of cool to to be able to like customize your own generators within your own project, but I, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking that instead of putting Tailwind classes in the generated markup, you would put um like PHX dash button, PHX dash modal, or some kind of generic class, and then reference that with um like a Tailwind component that uses apply in a in a CSS file. And so, I, I don't know, maybe a demonstration would be better at illustrating this, but you would, as an engineer or as a designer, you could easily say, okay, we're not gonna use all the Tailwind stuff in this CSS file. We're gonna replace it with custom CSS or whatever other front-end style framework we want, we want. And then apply those to, because the post CSS and the at apply rule, it's nothing particular to Tailwind. It could be used for anything at all. So that's generic. And then it's just whether or not you want that add apply rule to be applying Tailwind, which could be the default or whatever else, which you could just rip out the included um, classes and put in your own classes. That's one yeah. idea. You'll kind of get that with what I'm thinking in my head. So we've talked about on the Phoenix team, like the actual app code that you write. So like our, our generators today, if you run Mix Phoenix Gen Live, generate put as few classes in mark the markup as possible in our generators, but we still have to have them. And um, what we're seeing, like, if we can properly componentize the app, the CRUD generators aren't that complex. So what you'll end up with is like a dot table or a dot button. And we could, we've talked about like, could we have like a dot dash dash tailwind and dash dash bootstrap or whatever, because ultimately it's just whatever the components underneath are doing. So I think that might be possible. I think the layout's going to have to necessarily be like have some classes in it. Um, but so I think some like bring your own framework could work. But uh, at the same time, swapping this stuff out isn't that difficult because um, like if, if you generate Mixed Phoenix Gen Live today, you get some markup that generates like a live modal. And that thing is whatever div tags and PHX classes I happen to write that looked somewhat reasonable with the milligram CSS that we ship with. Like that's not designed to be long lived. So like out of the box today, it's essentially throwaway markup in CSS for most people. Our goal was it looks decent. 
So I would say like we don't have the swappable nature today. So I think people will hear if we ship Tailwind, people are going to be like, I can't believe you're making this decision and pushing on everyone. It's hard to rip out. But at the same time, no one is maintaining a milligram based app, right? Or taking our modal classes and then just like modifying it to fit their designers requirements or just rewriting the, the markup. So I don't think we'll be any worse off. And um, what you're, we're going to generate into your app is these core components. So like the out of the box, Phoenix generates a table, a button, some forms uh, and a modal. So it's like you'll have a implemented fun function component in your app with that markup and tailwind classes. And then if you want to, uh, the escape patch in my mind at the moment is just you rewrite that markup just like you would today uh, for your milligram app. Uh, but there is an idea on like if no classes exist in the code, as far as the usage of that, maybe we could swap it out with like a different generators. Um, but TBD on that, we have to actually try to do it first. Elle has her hand up. I think in general, it'd be nice if Phoenix had more pluggable generators, because like it always throws me off that the live generators are in Phoenix proper. And it also means that you kind of have to lockstep, like to get a generator for the new live view feature, you have to release a Phoenix, even if the only change is in live view. And I, I know the only thing I can think of that has a pluggable generator system is, if I remember correctly, RSpec has that, where like you can say, use this library for like my database layer. And then like it knows to look in that gem to get the generator, that part of the generators. I don't know how common well, that is. I think just though. Rails, like Rails Engine supported that quite a bit. There was, ways for you to override the default uh, Rails generators and add on to them. Um, I mean, I, I did that quite a bit with a lot of our Rails libraries. Yeah, it's just brittle. That's why we don't do it today. I mean, theoretically, it's it's like we don't document it. It's like it's public if people ask us, if so many people ask about this, like you can drop a, you can drop a, in your project, you can do a priv templates phoenix.gen.live and implement or add files in there, EXS files, and do whatever you want. But we don't make any guarantees about the bindings that we pass to those EX files. Uh, so that's the the big caveat is if we support pluggability, then like we're suddenly uh, locked into what that major version of Phoenix was sending to the template, like the app name. I don't know. It's just it's been a maintenance thing where we've been like, nope, we're special. And then because other folks like they could add their own like tailwind.gen.live, right? And it just generates a CRUD app that gives you different components. So we basically punted on it. I've always been interested in how much time is spent on maintaining and extending functionality for the generators versus how many people are actually using the generators. And like the generators always make for a good demo and kind of like you know, showing off the functionality of the framework, but I mean, I, I don't use generate. I haven't used generators for any actual production app code in a long time. A lot of people do based on the client code that we see come in. Um, they do? Okay. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, like, you'll have like list users, list posts, right. and like it's used nowhere. Um, they just left, well, what, left it in place. So I think a lot of people One thing I was thinking, I don't know if we included in the last survey, but I do intend to run another ecosystem survey um, is maybe having uh, that question in the survey. Are you using generators? Have you used generators in the past year, just for now? I don't know. Anyway, L? I would say I use generators in the 
I know the generators do this, and I can't remember how to write the code because otherwise I would just copy a file that already exists. And so I always I end up having like a throwaway Phoenix project to generate the generators to fill in the values. All I really want is a live view app I can go to on the web where I type in like the name of my app and it runs the generator. Just here's the text. Like people in the Docker chat have said, I've asked them, hey, do you have an app that has this? Because like, especially when doing upgrades, like it is annoying to like have that side one to be like, okay, I need this generator because I'm missing some of the glue code, you know, like life helpers or something. And like, I don't realize it's missing. And like, that would be helpful to just have as a website so I don't have to generate it locally. Because I agree, like a lot of times the the generators, I, I guess I haven't been on a client yet where they've been okay with the modal on index. I'm sorry, Chris. And so we always end up doing something different. Yeah, I mean, part of the, that I mean, you don't have to apologize. It's like part of the cred, the live view cred generators, we didn't want it to just be like what you would have with the controller because like one, we're not showing, like we're showing nothing that live you can do. So like part of that is also trying to teach like, hey, you can do like live redirects and uh, push redirect and like do push dates. So like a lot, a lot of it is like, it's going to be app dependent. So like, I'm not, I don't think everyone should have a um, modal based uh, thing that update, you know, to update records. It's just an example of what people can do. So it's not necessarily anything that we're like trying to rubber stamp as the way to build UIs. Well, you should be able to know it's a Phoenix application based upon the design of the UI every single time. Yeah, well, with no, Tailwind, that's that, that's a bad yeah. joke. That's a bad joke. No, I know, but I, I think with Tailwind, though, the goal is like the the Phoenix generators today generate just uh, one modal function. So the goal is the generators on the next version of Phoenix, if we ship with Tailwind, um, we'll have like a standard set of like button modal table, and then that buys people some more time. So like if they want tables to look differently, they're not like the generators. I think will have longer legs than they do currently not that it's going to fit the app perfectly but if it like already is using your customized table then it's a lot less it's a lot use more useful code that you can start with versus being like well i'm not going to run the generator because i have to throw it all away so uh i think at this point we maybe want to move on to uh, our uh, maybe what should be our last topic maybe what should be our last topic given just uh time but um we had some discussion this week about uh, Credo and uh, the different ways people have used it and sort of what people want out of it. Um, I know that uh, that Mike has has used it especially to help people getting up to speed. Uh, you've done a lot of things where like people are coming in that aren't familiar with Elixir, and you're sort of like, these are the guardrails. This this will this is like the Elixir way of doing things. Um, uh, you know, and it is uh, Credo uh, says it's a it's primarily a, a like a, a teaching tool. Um, so I think that's really valid. And we've also had had some folks who are newer to Elixir say, I actually really want like give, tell me what rules I should have because I wanna I wanna know like what it should be telling me. Um, but there's some tension there sometimes with what uh, what's actually required. So because um, because you, you can enforce certain things with Credo as well. So to kind of frame this, like I think it's important to to keep in mind, um, you know, over a software career, you see you see things like 
test coverage sometimes people get like really fixated on test coverage or whatever like all the code quality tools that we have whether that's tests or formatting or readability checks or whatever are an, a means to an end so the end is we're trying to make maximally useful software with minimal cost of making and maintaining it so you know you can go you can go out you can fall off the the log in either direction right you can have no tests on your project which means that you don't really have any confidence that it works like it's supposed to and any for every time you change something you might be breaking stuff or you could go the opposite and try to get to 100% test coverage at which point you're going to spend so much time working on and maintaining the tests that you're you're really spinning your wheels and you know you could do all of that and still be making a product that nobody wants so uh, that that would be a waste um so um i think credo you uh is you know it fits in this realm of it's a code quality tool. Uh, it can be helpful in a lot of ways. Um, I think that uh, as we were thinking about this, I guess that you can, opinions are going to vary a lot on which checks you want to run. If you're going to run Credo, you can go through the list. A lot of the checks even say, hey, this one's controversial, or this one is like just a suggestion. Um, I would say you can put the checks in three buckets. and and your buckets might differ from somebody else's buckets. But basically, the buckets are, number one, yes. Like, yes, this check should be satisfied. We should enforce this. Like, there's no reason for you to check in code that doesn't satisfy this. Or at least, it would be very rare. So I would put something on that, like, um, like there's a, a check for uh, Boolean operations on same values. If your code says, if x and x, <laughs> like, you you didn't mean to do that. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, that would be a check that, uh, and, and there's some others that are like safety things, like unsafe to atom. There may be a case where you want to convert a string to an atom right there in the code, um, and you might need to put like the little exception comment on it. And so like that kind of stuff would be visible. And if you're doing that a lot, then maybe you don't want that rule. But I think there's definitely something you would want to enforce. The second bucket would be maybe, which is like, uh, I mean, this might be good advice, and um, maybe we want to see that, but we don't want to enforce it. The enforcement would be like CI won't let you, won't let this PR go through if you don't satisfy this check. The maybe bucket would be like, I'd like you to run this, I'd like you to see what it says, and then you can go nah and just ignore it, right? Because maybe it's telling you to alias something, and you're like, I don't want to alias that or whatever. And then the last bucket would be no, which would be I think that satisfying this check would actually make my code worse. So those are the three buckets you could put the checks into. And like I said, different people are going to have different opinions. Um, so I want to talk about some of those checks and why you might put some of those in, in certain buckets. Um, and then at the end, I want to kind of come back and talk about a workflow for at least dealing with the yes and maybe. And, and as far as like what goes in what bucket, somehow or other, the team's going to have to agree. So. Uh, does anybody want to jump in with checks that you would say this is really helpful? I would put this in yes. I would put this in maybe. Um, you know, I, I want people to see this, but not enforce it. Or I want to enforce this. Or I want to like actively not have this one. Free for all. Nathan, can you repeat all that? Nope. I didn't get it. I'm sorry. I, I don't like when I get yelled at <laughs> for uh, for having to do this. I, you don't okay to do yeah why not I like to um well I, I mean maybe this would be in more of like the suggestion category or something but um I've had on, on a project in the past we had a, like a pre 
uh, commit or pre-push hook uh, with Git. And if I was just like pushing a branch that I was working on and not even opening up a PR yet, uh, if I had like a to-do comment, it would block me from pushing, um, which for me, that like feels like unnecessary friction, um, especially when I'm like working on something in progress and I have some to-dos. Um, was that rule in place because the to-do was being treated as incomplete work or because a project manager wanted those to be tracked outside the code? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think it was the latter. Because Credo added the check and someone was like, yeah, we should check this. And oh, then, that's that's a pretty big and check Chris, in Credo. And then Chris McCord complained about it for two to three years and um, removed it on the project. Then I would, I would the, no, the no verify flag when pushing, and then we kind of kept rolling a little bit, but still, I don't want uh, to do that. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. So, yeah, it, it makes to, uh, the, the to do to me, the conversation ha should happen at the beginning of the project, right? Where, where are we tracking our, our things? You know, our, our actual to work that we need to do. And to your point, having it on commit would be, is, is, going to be overkill because like you said you, you've got to do is that you're that's you talking to yourself uh in the branch um but maybe have that on merge like you can't merge into main if you've got it to do like that needs to then be pulled out and put into into you know whatever the tracking system is i yeah, still I'm, like in code team... to do is because it moves with the code like the jira ticket isn't going to keep this line if i split up the file and the to do still applies to the function the Jira ticket or the Sun ticket isn't going to track that. I like encode to dos. I know we've been on lots of clients though, where like their to do is old and they're never going to do it. So there is that problem. But at least my personal ones, like I include it because I need to revisit this later. And most of my to dos are actually like, I don't know how this works in the wild. I'll wait for someone to tell me about it. But it helps that Kotlin's to do is also their unimplemented exception. So someone will report as a bug when the to do is not done. I think I agree so, with that. So was... And yeah, so I believe you can actually on the config file, you can set up like uh, not actually failing, you know, the status code for to do and actually having those listed as, okay, you have seven, 10 or any number of to do's to actually take, but I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to send you the, the failure status code. So that's an, definitely an option you have there. Which is not like, hey, you have them here. Like, perhaps would you like them to tackle them soon or not? But perhaps not failing. I, I guess it kind of, um, and maybe this is the core of the, the issue is what, what is it to do, right? Like, is it simply a note to yourself in the future, or is it actual work that you need to do, but you're just not doing it right now, right? Say a note to yourself in the future that may or may not be actionable work in the future. Um, I mean, I, I, this, my opinions here are like to do is absolutely shouldn't be flagged in the code is like non-mergeable because, uh, as L said, they, they're going to outlive the issue tracker you're using potentially, but also they're going to outlive it and just where that to do exists at all. But for me, it's like the, the bad to do's that we see in client apps coming in are ones that shouldn't pass actual code review by a human. So like if I had a to do in the app, like the most. The last one I added at Dockyard was like, you know, uh, migrate to uh, 
ERPC, which is Erlang 24 uh, RPC library uh, that replaces the RPC module when we upgrade to OTP 24. For me, that existing in the code should be in the code and it's totally fine. Now, if someone opened a pull request and they had to do refactor this crap, which I've seen like literally that, that not, not a dockyard, actually when I was a Rails developer, refactor this crap, you know, committed five years prior, like that shouldn't have passed code review, right? So it's like, there are valuable things or not, but for me, the ones that shouldn't leak forever, or like to do fix me, that tells you nothing, that should fail code review, but it shouldn't be the computer credo saying like, oh, you can't merge this now because you want to tell yourself to upgrade OTP whenever that happens in the future. Yeah, I think I think that a lot of this stuff, what we're trying to do is find the right things to automate, like things that someone would call out, a human would call out in a pull request, but you just like, you're trying to alleviate that workload. Like, hey, every time we're going to tell you to do this, let's just automate it, right? Let's just automate that suggestion. Um, but I think, I think what you're saying is that this is a case where maybe human judgment is required. Human judgment is required to fail it. Um, so I think my biggest grievance, I think Credo is extremely useful. And, and Nathan, I think that the way you said it, like it's first and foremost, like a learning and teaching tool that can also enforce rules is the way that sums it up perfectly. But I think that historically we've used it at Dockyard as like, Here's the rules, deal with it. Um, and I think a lot of the rules have been unnecessary. A lot of the rules that are otherwise helpful suggestions have been like, well, this is just the rule. And to do is a one a good example. So it's like, because by default, the Credo EXS says I can't have it to do. Well, I guess I can't have it to do. And I usually find out about it after I push and the computer yells at me. And then that's I guess when I just, that's, just rename it to a tada. It's a tada. No, I know. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. <laughs> no. but I think. So that's why this like bucketed conversation is helpful because I think it's like maybe those to dos are worth calling out if you're running credo checks to see what it's suggesting and you're like oh yeah some of these did leak long term but don't fail my build because I want to remind myself to use the more performant ERPC when it becomes available. Yeah, well, so I mean, I guess this this is where I'm thinking, and maybe this is just simply the difference between spending more time in the code versus at a, at a project management level, um, if, that, if that makes sense. But basically, you know, so for example, the, the you know, upgrade to ERPC when, when we require uh, OTP 24, if you're in the code all the time, you're gonna see that around the time that you require OTP 24. But if you're not, that you could, that could get lost and you could be on OTP 30. And then finally someone looks back and says, oh, we should have done this six revisions ago um you know to, to me that's where the the you know yes you're you're the the code's going to outlast the issue tracker but the issue tracker is going to get reviewed periodically whereas the code isn't necessarily and and you know maybe and again that's based on the type of projects you're working on um yeah i don't know but, i've never been on a project i mean it depends like in this case like this actual case like there was no plan to upgrade to otp24 so i guess you could put that in an item somewhere that would forever live in the backlog, never be assigned to anyone, and at some point would get picked up. But this was just like, hey, this new feature was released. We're not up to date on the bleeding edge OTP. So I don't know. For me, it's a long-lived mm -hmm. thing that should live in the code. It's not like implemented this feature, not even planned. It's just like we know at some point, if this app lives long enough, we're going to be on 
you know, what is now bleeding edge is eventually going to be, you know, latest stable. Right. Yeah. And I guess that, that might get to my, you know, is that really a to do? It's a, it's a note for the future, a potential note for the future, as opposed to, to me, when I see it to do, it's like, this has to get taken care of. Like it's, it, I don't have time to do it now, but it's got to get done. And so maybe that's, that's the, that's the difference there. Um, and I think to, to the, to the point that you mentioned about, you know, so there's the, there's the, I'll require this, suggest this, and then, you know, don't mention this. Um, one of the, one of the issues in, is if you, those ones that are in the middle of the suggestions that are, you know, maybe, you know, we, you should do this, but we're not going to require you to do that. Um, is that it kind of gets to, and this is a, um, something I've, I've kind of thought more about as far as even like logging, like when you come, when it comes to logging, there's, you know, to me, if you're, there are cases when you're like debugging something, you might need something, but if you're not going to, if, if you're not going to take action on something, then it doesn't necessarily need to be logged, right? Like. All it's going to do is throw noise there, um, and that's from a, from a logging standpoint. But all, but then from from like Credo, what we've got come into is projects where you run it, and there's like six six thousand failures, right? And so it's like, well, it's not as soon as it's not enforced, it's going they're going to start, you know, th that list is just going to start exploding, and so um, that. However, I think uh, Nathan mentioned there's a there's a the newer feature, the diff thing, which allows you to only run it on your code, which is which is is better and more helpful. Um, so, you know, there's that. Yeah, I want to let Elle say something, but then I want to come back to that. Yeah, I I was gonna say one of the concerns I have with the like suggested but not enforced one is you lose the ratchet. You know, like the code doesn't steadily improve. And it's the people that care about the suggestion that ends up fixing the suggestions on their PRs. The diff might work out okay. It's probably either doing a per file or maybe a per line. It's not doing like a, a subsection of the line thing. So I feel like the people that do the code cleanup, like myself, are the ones that are going to actually do those rules. And they'll they'll fall into an old code base and have to clean it up, which will be somewhat annoying. Um, and additionally, going back to, I actually thought of ones that annoy me that um, from the beginning is that the one about the, the function is too long and the nesting is too deep. Because sometimes multiple case statements make it much clearer what you're doing than like, I now have to throw this into another function. Way down here, it's off your screen now. Yeah, I agree with that, Al. So I, I think, one, I will say you're absolutely right that the people that care about the suggestions uh, will be the, you said will be the one to, Take care of them but i would say like that's the feature like periodically like at the end of a sprint or whatever you do you're, you're going to try to go back and pay it out in some tech debt and that's exactly the time where you, you might want to look at the suggestions but it doesn't mean that a lot of these rules this is my biggest beef they are possible suggestions that should be evaluated not something not a prescription to improve the code because they may not improve the code at all and they may make it worse so i think the problem i'm having is where Every suggestion previously has been enforced as an ultimate rule. And then I'm making the computer happy, but making the code worse. And that's where, so I think you're right that only the people that care about the suggestions are going to look at them. Uh, to me, that's, it, to me, implementing a suggestion because you're forced to doesn't mean that you're going to improve the code. 
I would say you're both correct, but I also think that it's not a guaranteed improvement. A lot of these rules, like if I use the alias twice in the module, am I making my code better by aliasing it and then using the alias? No, I'm just making the computer happy. So I think it's going to be case by case. And that's clearly what the suggestion is, like a suggestion, not necessarily do this because your code will get better. So I want to talk about sort of the, there was kind of a, um, a conundrum in my mind about this. And I and, and this week I kind of realized, oh, there's there could be a way around this. So if you have a set of rules and it's just, these are our rules, we enforce them. Um, then uh, that can that can cause friction for people that are like, I don't I don't want to enforce, I don't want to do this rule, like you're saying, Chris, like I don't want to do this alias, like this is this is not helpful. Um, on the other hand, if you if if you've got a bunch of stuff that's optional and you're running against the whole code base, then what's going to happen is let's say Chris, you know, you're like I'm not going to do this alias, so I'm just going to leave that one. Then the next time, you know, Mike jumps in on the code and he runs it. There's one warning sitting out open. So now he has to decide: Do I go back to Chris's code and do the alias, or do I leave it alone? If I if I go do it, then I'm going to make the diff on my PR, you know, confusing because like why did you go touch this other module? But if I don't do it, then next time I come back, I've got to mentally go, oh yeah, I ignored that one. And then next time it's going to be five, and next time it's going to be ten, and then pretty soon there's going to be such a wall of warnings that it's completely useless. It's just noise, right? I can't even see what I just what what I just added. So um, the feature that you mentioned, the diff feature, I think might be the key here. So a couple of things. This this is the workflow that I'm thinking about now. And, and to be clear, I haven't done this on a project yet. I've just kind of like tinkered with this on the side. And it seems like this would be a good solution for, for a team. So you can actually have two, you can actually have different sections in your credo config, different named sections, and you can run them with like dash dash or uh, config name, uh, and then whatever it is, you can call it required. So you can have a, a required config section, and you can run that in CI. And those would be just things that like, if you're doing this, it's almost definitely a mistake. Uh, you know, you're calling a string function like upcase, and you're not using the result of that. I mean, there's there's no reason to do that ever. <laughs> um, so delete that line or start using it because you have a bug. Um, so th those are the enforced things, and then you can have a section of suggested things. And the key here is you can run dash dash config suggested or whatever config name suggested, and you can do that on the diff. And what what it does, as far as I understand, is basically it. You tell it, I'm diffing with the main branch, say, and it'll check out the main branch, run that uh, that credo config, and then run it on your branch, or maybe opposite order, but it compares the two. And basically it's saying, which issues did you add? So if you're working on module B, and Chris left an, a, a thing in module A where he didn't do the alias, it's not going to tell you about that. It's just going to be like, hey, the, the, the changes you just made in module B, by the way, you might want to do this alias. And you can go, eh. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Do it or don't do it. And then you go push, and CI is only going to enforce the stuff that's required. So I think that that workflow gives a place for all of the maybe stuff you get to put in that suggestion area. Somebody coming onto the project who's newer to Elixir, who doesn't have a lot of opinions, you know, they're going to come, they're going to run that, and whatever their diff is, Creo is going to give them a bunch of suggestions. And they're going to say, oh, I've got some, I've got some, uh, uh, what are those things? You bumpers, I guess, that you put in the bowling lane, uh, the bowl, uh, when you're bowling. Uh, you know, I've got I've got some guardrails. I've got something that's telling me uh, I should maybe think about these things. Oh, I came from JavaScript and I'm camel casing my function name, and it's telling me not to do that. Okay, cool. I'll fix that. Right. Um, 
so that, that kind of, that gives them some guidance, but it also gives room for somebody who has their own opinions uh, to just say, mm, I don't think I need to do that. Uh, I think that the, the place where there's a rub, so you've got your yes that's enforced, you've got your maybe that's in, this, in the suggested config section. The rub is, what about the no's, right? So if, if Chris is like, I hate this check, I never want, like this check makes my code worse. And other people on the team are like, but we want this check. You can't even put it in suggested, right? Because Chris is like, no, don't suggest that. <laughs> or, you know, whatever, whoever it is. On the suggested. Team. I mean, I'm never going to look at the suggestions, so go for it. Well, but I mean, if you really believe that that check makes the code worse, then it, it's suggesting to your teammates to do stuff yeah. to the code. I mean, the alphabetical one, we can just call it out. Like, if you yeah. put an alpha, make the code alphabetical, one, that doesn't make sense as a suggestion unless you enforce it. But you're basically hitting on the suggestions that I think are just demonstrably bad. Where like, we shouldn't even suggest this because it makes things worse entirely, like always. Then yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, one example, like credo, the credo default config used to warn if you did like, if user equals get user, do end. And we convinced them to not make that a default. But that's another one where it's like, I would consider that fine always. And it should never suggest that it's bad because the Elixir compiler is going to warn you anyway if you if you aren't using that binding. Like it comes from like C, right? Like in C, people like used to disallow that because you could you meant to do a quality check, but you didn't. But in Elixir, like it, you're not going to have that kind of bug. So yeah, there are checks that just don't make sense to me at all. Would never be an improvement, and those does, I just don't think should be added. Does Credo uh, when you install it, does it have like a default set of rules, or is it or yeah. is it up to you to there's a in. generator that throws defaults in and one of them I used to that. be uh, what I forget what they called it it would basically every new phoenix app warned because we were doing like if error equals get error and then uh yeah. we complained enough then they they dropped it but yeah i think like i mean they have to be opinionated at some level and give you some starting point um, i don't know if they do though like it's like the the defaults are always going to be somebody's defaults right and now you know Teams that are learning Elixir or you know fairly new to it, they install Credo because they're told to install Credo. And now the defaults that are, you know, the rules are being imposed upon the project, maybe not even rules that the team decided. They're just like, oh, this is what we should be doing. We should be using Credo. Um, like I uh I've always felt that opt-in, you know, I think a rules engine in general is okay in certain cases because there are always going to be certain things that always come up on PR code reviews that are just like, okay, this has happened like a hundred times. We just need a way to kind of, you know, save our time and, you know, just have a, a you know, something raise up before it even gets to the PR for us to review. Uh, I think those are, those are fine, but, you know, I, I like the idea of the team collectively deciding what their lingua franca is and kind of you know building their own rule set you know of course there has to be some sort of reason applied to there and you shouldn't go crazy with it yeah well the, but the, the default rules though, are but, but brian you need some default so like if, if you're going to use credo credo if it gave you nothing like uh, nathan was saying if you call a pure function and don't do anything with that result in the middle of a function definition like the computer knows that that's not going to have any side effect and is it's wrong. So I think that's fine. So I think there are certain checks that like, you know, are like, okay, yeah, that's the same thing to call out. 
like you, you that does nothing right like the, the computer should tell you when like just like a type system right like the computer knows it's wrong to tell you it's wrong so i do think there are some defaults that absolutely make sense for credo to do but it definitely very quickly spills over into opinion land um and i forget what the defaults are these well, that's days, my cause... that's my issue is that you know like there's the um i forget the rules engine in javascript but i implemented it when i rewrote uh what was eventually rewritten for the the the, the js stuff in phoenix um and uh i am pretty certain that when you install that js rules engine it starts with zero, zero assumptions right and it's now up to you in the project maintainers opt into the rules that you want to apply i mean there's something to be said about how uh permissive javascript is and so it can get like really out of hand very quickly um and uh, elixir is a lot more strict yeah in, i guess uh, i'd rather have but, a i would rather have a sane very small set of defaults um yeah, I'm, the, I'm the biggest complainer about like, the creator is tool but i do think there are just too many built-in rules i do think part of this whole part of my complaint about this entire thing is so many things are off the shelf that teams are like like we shouldn't even be needing to evaluate these things and bike shit about them like there are absolutely rules we can discuss but like because it's it's a one line thing to be like oh yeah let's alphabetize all functions and enforce that and someone's like hey let's have a discussion let's vote on that and i'm like what are we even doing like no we're like we don't need to talk about alphabetizing our entire code base like let's yeah just shift no features. no i mean those, those are so i think i think there's there's a middle ground there i think saying defaults where the critic can call out what's obviously wrong is wrong and then yeah you can have some off the shelf ones but I feel like there's too many accessible features to ultimately bike shed over in an attempt to not bike shed like long term. So it's the whole it's like basically how all of these linters end up going where it's like the team is like, oh, we always bike shed about things. So let's do this linter so we don't have to bike shed. And then and there's like 100 options to be like, OK, let's have a week long discussion about alphabetizing functions. And then like, oh, sorry, you can't push your code because you co-located your functions together for clarity. And I don't know. It just. I don't understand it. And go ahead, Ella. You've had your hand raised for a while. Oh, I was going to bring up that the, the reason why Credo can't have no defaults is because, Brian, they're, they're just going to get bug reports that it's not working. Like, yeah, even software lint. developers are kind of bad about configuring software. I, I have so many bug reports about them not reading the readme or the prompts to configure the editor and being like, it doesn't work. It just makes the colors. I don't get any help. It's like, yeah, you need an SDK. Like, I mean, I, I may, I may be shooting myself here, but and I can look up. Yes, Eastland may be inundated with all these type of bug reports that's not working. But I, I, my recollection is that the project comes without any defaults, and it's up to you to opt into it. And I would guarantee Eastland is like from an exposure is going to be a significantly more popular project and being used by a lot more teams than than credo and elixir are and so it's it's happening it's it's definitely you know and that's a it's a fairly uh uh big project and it's been around for a while so I, I don't know if i buy the argument that it is a bad idea because there's examples of a very large uh rules-based engine in another language that's doing it exactly this yeah, but it's for the same reason that like Phoenix New generates Ecto and adds Live View. Like if we we could be like, oh, all we give you is plug and a Hello World page, and then we're like, you can easily bring in these like Credo. I think it's for the same reason. Like they need to give their users an example of 
here's what a sane configuration looks like. So I think the getting started experience with Credo is well served by a default generator. Uh, otherwise, uh, you're in what L said, where you're just like, no one actually ends up using it. Like they add the dependency and then it always reports right. nothing. So and you're like, wow. I'll give, I'll give really kind good. of like the, I'll give our own personal example of of this is, and I brought this up when we just had, you know, we were going over this uh, earlier in the week in Slack, is back in Ember, uh, Estelle, our director of engineering, she, I think this was her most popular open source library, it's called Ember Suave. And, you know, it's kind of like a play on Rico Suave, and she had a picture of Rico Suave in there. And this was essentially just a rules engine uh, that was an implementation of Dockyard's own style guide. Um, but because it wasn't called like Ember dash Dockyard dash style guide, it was called Ember Suave. Um, people started using, and we just published it because it's open source. Uh, companies and teams started using it and just assumed that the rules that were in, in there were kind of like the blessed rules of the Ember community. And they weren't, they were Dockyard rules. And so I would argue that the same probably exists for the credo defaults. These aren't the blessed rules of the Elixir community. These are the rules of the maintainers of, these are the you know, styles that, that the credo maintainers want. And um, that that's where I kind of come to is that, you know, you start, with teams that are buying into it and maybe many of the rules are common sense and good to have. I, I haven't reviewed the rules in credo just that you're kind of, everyone's buying into this as if it's the way, right. And um, I kind of feel like that's coming from a bit of an uninformed place. You're not really vetting the uh, necessity of each rule necessarily. You're kind of, you know, buying into the the whole rule set um, as a thing. And I've all, personally, I've always found for teams that rules that grow organically and are opt-in are always, like we can defend those rules because we've already talked about them. And, you know, when you have new people join a company, if they just went with the defaults, you may have people like wasting, not wasting time, but spending time, like, like trying to challenge the team. Like why did we, use these defaults. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And teams like, oh, that's what the default was. And that's not a really good defending position to be in. So I want, I want to get uh, some input from, I, I can't remember when we were having this discussion, uh, who was saying like, I want guidance from this thing. Uh, but I feel like people coming in to Elixir. I mean, I, I would, if, I don't know if, Credo is possible doing this, but I'm hoping that, you know, in the future, our editors are going to be able to do this. But the, the number one thing that needs to be like uh, automated away is basically calling out like code that blocks. And because uh, that's like the constant issue we see with some clients is that something's been implemented that's not really written in a way to take advantage of Elixir scalability architecture. And it's written in a uh, a fashion that you know works but doesn't you know it basically makes Elixir looks like it's not performant and th this has been kind of like a uh, a con a long troll that we not a troll but it's been we've seen this come up often enough that it feels like something that at some point the editors or a rules engine or something should be smart enough to call out that you know do you want to do this do you want to implement it this way this is going to block this is going to slow down your code 
that would be far more interesting and useful to me than anything that possible. is like what's that i don't think that's going to be possible within I think, static I, analysis i don't know you, you take uh, some, if, I mean, if you need to correlate multiple files that's called an inspection i can do those in intellij elixir just tell me the yeah but the want. problem is uh, like blocking like the way we write elixir is like if you were in node and you're like okay you're going cpu bound here and you're going to make the program i get but in elixir like we we write blocking code intentionally all the time um exactly because we can without slowing down the entire system um but the problem that you're talking about brian is like if you have a web request come in and like there it, it depends on like where the call site happens and like the context of like if you have a waiting caller on the other side but it gets really murky because I could just I could do a gen server I could talk to a synchronous call you know a process and I expect that to give give me a response almost immediately um, but if I do that from right but a so, thousand callers so at once it could be problems so like there, I'm just saying synchronous code is a good thing and we do it everywhere uh, no, it's one no, of the it's, features it's necessary like, it's, manage, it's one of the features yeah, I, don't, I don't know that you'll get static analysis on it and I think it would be hold on if the computer is so, like hey this is this isn't async it's just going to end up people being like okay task async and it's going to be not solving the problem yeah where, where I'm going with this is more in you know in more intelligent tools that we're going to see coming about in the next decade or so like that's coming there's going to be more implementation of machine learning there's going to be more implementation of other natural language processing and such and so the other day, uh, I was pairing with Mike while he was implementing some of the CMS stuff. And that was the first time I saw that VS Code, what's it called, the, the canyon or whatever, where like we'll Profile. you know figure out from GitHub. And it's like pulling, like it's it's a trained model based upon GitHub open source projects, right? And you know, I that it was kind of cool. And then I'm watching it afterwards. I'm like, you know, if the model, you know, if if Elixir is kind of like this language where uh, you can fuck on yourself fairly easily with the performance aspects of it, are we going to be running into a place where like all these code recommendations and code tools are going to be basically injecting in these, uh, yes, garbage in, garbage out? I mean, it does yeah. come down to the model, whether, you know, how good it is, but considering how simple it was and how impressive it was that it was able to do like this fairly complex code completion, uh, in in the code, I, I was like, this is probably going to like be rampant for just like all sorts of performance problems throughout application code building. I'm sure and, that's true. I don't, but I don't think like I think your desire. The only way to fight for, against that is going to be automated. Uh, yeah, but at least for Elixir, tools. though, it's like it's like the halting problem in disguise, right? Like you're not going to. I don't think it's actually going to be feasible to analyze. And have the computer tell you that this is a bad blocking call. Maybe, maybe if someone's far smarter than that, because like, like you don't know, you're. I don't know. Like the, I don't think there's any specific. There's no specification in your code to say whether or not like that call is going to ever complete in a reasonable amount of time, and it's going to depend on system load at the time. I don't know. I don't know that that this specific case is actually feasible. But I agree with you. Like the more the the more things a computer can tell me about my program that are just wrong, it, the better. But I don't know if this is actually going to be a feasible thing in Elixir. Can I steer us back a little bit to where we were? Uh, so the use case of of Credo, I think, especially for people coming into Elixir, uh, that I was hearing was, I want some coaching here. Can, does anybody have that point of view that wants to pipe up and, and talk about that a little bit? 
yeah I'll, I'll just throw myself out there like i find it extremely valuable to get any kind of feedback uh you know clip clippy squiggly lines under my under my misspelled words like um and it's not it's not because i'm writing terrible code necessarily but like i am coming from patterns from javascript and so you know i'm gonna do things i'm gonna make assumptions about how code should be written and for credo to to wave its finger at me is uh really helpful i, I might maybe i don't need to listen to everything uh that credo strict is going to say but it's um for me it's it's kind of a learning tool i could yeah and that. that's how i mean some some of the the biggest uh blockers for learners sometimes is is bike shedding on like code quality and like you know what is the way to do things and you know the whether or not what they're implementing is the best way it's more important to just keep moving and so if you know someone that if implemented the best way is something that is constantly blocking you from continuing your education then having something like credo just to keep you progressing is probably very valuable yeah and there's a little bit of a chicken and egg like if that's what you're looking for you're looking for like some like um, like a coaching experience. Like I'm coming into Elixir, I want somebody to kind of tell me what to do while I'm learning. Then if you have to then go and figure out which checks to add, then like by the time you've done that, you are you already like learned those things yourself. So I, I think I think having some defaults makes sense. If I think if you didn't have those, then it would just be a blog post somewhere that people go copy and paste those defaults. I mean, I, I think I think it makes sense to have some of those. Um, but I think I think it really comes down to like there's this <laughs> there's this tension of like you want each team needs to decide which rules they want you know which rules are we gonna suggest which rules are we gonna are we gonna enforce but then the whole point of this is to minimize bike shedding so if you end up spending a lot of time on that discussion then like you're wasting time again you know it doesn't make it doesn't necessarily make your software better uh, it's it's something that can help. Some of these, I think, are definitely mistakes they're going to point out. Some of these are like, mm, this might be prettier. My personal opinion is lean away from the this might be prettier stuff and and use the things for mainly like, you're probably doing it wrong if you're doing this. Nathan, we come, we come from the days, and Chris too, and maybe a few others in this room, where we would get really happy about aligning all of our assignment operators up on the same column. I mean, yeah, remember when we, about, that I'm still sad about, I'm still sad about this <laughs> with the Elixir formatter, because like there are absolute cases. So, I mean, I, I would align my uh, assignments for sure. And I'm sad to lose that, but it's fine. But there are absolutely cases where I'm specifying a data structure in a tabular friendly display way that now just gets wrecked. Uh, by the formatters yeah. i wish i could annotate be like leave this alone um but yeah it is what it is i mean it got pretty it deep in in ruby days where it was like oh what other operators can we align all of our statements on and that, that you like treating your code as art i i've always felt like is uh it's a process that engineers feel like they have to go through to a degree sometimes because you're in this code every single day and you're staring at it. And if it doesn't look the way that you want, that may be a mental block for you sometimes. It definitely is for me. But then, you know, after you've been around for a few years, that 
blocker code, that class, that whole functionality that you spent looking very pretty for so long. Uh oh, business needs change. Toss it out, right? <laughs> and now it's all or, gone. Or you, and, or you come back to it. You're like, what is this shit? So yeah, what is this? That was beautiful. But, no, but code is going back what, It's not. Yeah, it's going, temporary. Going to what Nathan said though, on on Credo, I think. For me, I think it's wrong. I, I know we've had discussions internally. I don't, I don't know where we landed on assessing the rules. But to me, I feel like it's better start with whatever Credo default is, assuming it passes uh, on Phoenix Studio. I believe it does. Like same defaults. And then like it will be wrong to go through every rule that exists in, in Credo and say like, should we have this, should we not? You're basically inviting bike shedding and inviting pain. I would rather it be like as a team – as we were reviewing our PRs, right, and we we're like, wow, some this is constantly an issue that we're bike shedding about. Let's go see if there's a rule or ride around create a rule for that. Versus like, let's look at all the rules that exist and then bike shed to death every rule that's there. Like, I feel like that's just inviting pain because you're going to be like, hey, do we need to alphabetize our code base? And again, that's a question that's never come into my mind ever in editing code. And now for the last three years, I've been complaining about it because it made it into our defaults. But had that rule not existed, I don't think anyone on the team will have ever been like, hey, let's alphabetize our code. So I think it's wrong yeah, to basically... You're assuming that teams are democracies. Well, no, I mean, and they, they shouldn't necessarily be in every way. But I just mean, like, it's wrong to look at every rule that exists and then evaluate it case by case. I think, like, go with same defaults and then go with, like, maybe there's something that we always encounter and we add the rule for it. But don't be like... I mean, don't basically, don't as an engineer, is... don't be like, what knobs can I turn? And then let's turn all the yeah. knobs we can. I feel like that's what we do by default. How many rules does Credo give you by default? There are a lot like commented a out, but there's quite a few built in. 40, 50 rules. Is there, it, does it just like generate a template uh, or yeah. the rule file into your yep. project? Yeah, it generates a config file that you can then customize. And it's got stuff like separated into, into enabled and disabled sections and uh, you can configure some of them, uh, some of the rules you can configure, like, like I, I think the alias one, you can say how many levels deep does something have to be before it's going to suggest that you alias it, and so on and so on. Um, so there's about 90, 90 rules. Does it just uh, copy the one out of the root directory of the Credo project, or is it somewhere else? Not yeah, so it's one of the the one on the root. That's the one that gets generated. Uh, and so there's 90 yeah. total, and maybe 30 are um, disabled. They changed it in the new version, though, that it oh, yeah. doesn't generate a file that is just read. the The new file isn't overrides because the old one would you generate it, and then you wouldn't get like the changes in new versions of Credo, which it was problematic. Or like you would be using Credo and like nothing new would ever happen. You'd have to like kill your old file and like hand merge it with the new one. And so now you you only need the things that you actually care about that are different than the defaults. Wait, alias order is a default readability check. Yeah, see this. All right, I've been <laughs> now we're, now we're code about. reviewing Credo. What? Uh, so, well, I'm just saying it's been a while since I've. Looked at um, what the defaults were, and that's another one where I'm like, I would say alphabetization is always a, a fallback to me, but only if there's not a better semantic ordering. So, like, I would do aliases a lot. I, and this goes back to like how I wrote C includes is like distance of like you, you alias standard library first, it is the farthest away from you. Then you 
alias your dependencies. Then you alias like your dependencies in the same project or that like your company makes. So same project would be Umbrella or Poncho or like same company. And you find the alias in project because they should win. They're the closest to you. And then, but like in a group when you have no better order, sure, alphabetize. But it's like the fallback when you don't have a way that makes more sense. And yeah, by the, the way, way, the way I... that one works right. Go ahead, Mike. The way that works right now, um, if I remember correctly, you can it, it's it's alias within a group. So if you had a, if you had a new line between you know two, uh, if there's a gap between them, it allowed you to have each of the groups uh, uh, in order. But then there's also another check that will say, hey, you should have all your aliases together if you want that. So. Yeah, so here, here's one where so like this sounds reasonable. Like I, I wouldn't, I'm not gonna die on this hill. But this is another default where like this apps, this doesn't add any value or make my code better or any of our team, or any of our teams code better. I agree with Els' uh, comment about like there is some semantical order that maybe makes sense. But like when I need an alias, I just go add an alias and I write my code. It's never been like where should I put this alias in the existing aliases. It's never made my code better or worse. But what has made my life worse is trying to do a git push and then Credo runs and tells me, sorry, you didn't accommodate this arbitrary rule. So this is this is one example. Like I said, I won't die on this hill because I think it's what you like a, a reasonable order. If something has to be ordered, makes sense. But to me, this is a case where like it provides no value. When I need an alias, I add an alias. Like I'm done. There's no more thought to that. And if I'm reviewing someone's code and there's like a diff, they added an alias here, cool, looks good, right? Like I'm not like, oh, but did they put it in the right place? So counterpoint, uh, the, the, the issues that I've seen with that is that is if everyone's adding all their aliases at the bottom of the list, that you start getting the merge conflicts mess around with that. Um, and also you start having people duplicate. Now, I've seen files with like the same alias three or four times because it was added here and then it was much more added and then it was added here. It was a bunch, you know, that's that, right. well, that I mean, that's, that's someone merging the, bad code. I mean. I don't sure. think alphabetizing, yeah. if you have people duplicating aliases in a file, something has gone wrong in that module and in that code base. Alphabetizing the code isn't the solution to prevent. Maybe that should, maybe that should be the check. Is, isn't the solution to prevent bad code. You know what I mean? Like if there's so many aliases and code dependencies in one module that people are just like duplicating an alias three times, something's gone bad. And I don't think alphabetizing I, I, that has prevented, I don't think, I don't think an alphabetization check would have been like, oh, wow, this module is too large. I need to like think about refactoring. What's going to happen is if, 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 they're, if they're to that point, they're just going to start dumping more code in the file. Like this is where like we bike shit about these things. And instead of focusing on on good design, it's just like Credo is not going to give us good design. It can only give us suggestions. I, I kind of do wish the compiler would be like, hey, this alias is going to conflict. And Credo, at least the alias check now does that. It. it didn't originally would be like, oh, if I told you to do this alias, we'd get a collision. But I kind of wish the Elixir compiler would just be like, hey, you're re-aliasing this. That's dumb. Yeah, I'm I mean, surprised it doesn't do that. I mean, well, those checks have gotten better. With, it's like the compile times. It's gotten better with each time. So it's probably just something no one's gotten around to doing a PR for. Unless there really is a reason. I mean, the other thing, I guess the one credo thing I would really, I don't know if there's a current check for this, of like, don't alias off an alias. And they at least they make they tell you to put the imports first, but like, don't import off an alias, because everyone's human brain is going to be like, I am directly importing that module, not like, am, is this an alias? 
Look at the aliens. Okay, I'm importing that. Yeah, I'm. I would be okay with that check. One one opinion that I do have is that, uh, like, when is the right time to check stuff? Like, whatever checks you're doing, you're checking. Uh, do the tests pass? Is the stuff formatted? Is do credo checks pass? Um, anything that's going to be enforced. My opinion is I want that to happen in CI at the time of the PR. Um, and also have that as something I can easily run locally on demand or, you know, whatever tool integration I want to use. I tend to just go to the, the terminal and run stuff manually. But like on our project, we have a CI task command that you run and it does all the checks that we're going to do in CI. And so you can tell if it's going to pass. Uh, I mean, barring some weird environmental thing, it's going to run the same way. Uh, but I, what I don't like is when I commit or something, and then something is like, oh, your stuff isn't formatted or you have a to-do or whatever, because I'm still, this is all, this is rough. I'm on my branch. Nobody's looking at this yet. I'm just pushing code up in case my house burns down. Like, <laughs> leave me alone. I want to commit. I want to rebase 10 times or whatever. And then like, when I make a PR, I'll make sure it's clean. I'll make sure the tests pass and everything's formatted and whatever, whatever. Um, yeah, that's I, just a work I, thing. I like it last, mostly because my workflow with Git now is like, if I forget to run Credo and have to fix it, I do fix up commits and then do a rebase to clear them out so I don't have a messy PR. Um, but I don't want them as they're happening because it's a rough draft. Like I might end up deleting the code for other reasons, so it doesn't need to be perfect. And mostly I run format when I like, I'm like, uh, if I just run mixed format, this will clean the code up for me and I won't have to do it by hand, so I'll just let mixed format do it. Yeah, uh, I think in past couple projects we've had, uh, it checks the format on commit. But, um, you know, I'm, at least for me, I'm running uh, format on save in, in VS Code. So it, it should only ever trigger if something went wrong. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think they, were, they, they similarly they added uh, uh, JavaScript linting to make sure it's that's formatted too on commit, but then the full suite on, on push. Which again, you can no verify if you want to skip. Maybe it's just the way I use Git, but like I do a lot of commits. Like when I'm working on a branch, I might do 20 commits and rebase a few times and stuff. So I don't like for, I think this is the same feeling I have about like I use Vim and I don't use a lot, I don't use like language server integration and stuff because I like things to feel really snappy. When I do get commit and I hit, you know, the commit message, like I want it to be done and I want to be back on the terminal in like less than a second. And like whatever I'm doing in my editor, I want it to be really, really snappy. And then when I want do my formatting, do my test, all that stuff, you know, then I wanna I want us explicitly ask for that. But until I'm asking for it, I want my tool to just be as fast as possible. That's maybe a personal preference thing. I don't do small commits because I've just found it really annoying to try to merge the commits at the end and make them the clean version I want for the PR. Like, especially because I know in most cases, I'll, the PR will be multi-PR. So I don't want to have like the bug fix or the format here and I have to do it because it'll be a conflict. If I do that, I feel like I spend the last day of like each PR just cleaning it up and getting it ready for presentation. So instead, usually my code is just sitting there, not committed. You know, so fire occurs, week lost. <laughs> yeah, I'm more in that camp. I uh, I use the the diff tool in VS Code to see to show me my the 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 branch as a whole, really. You know, so I'm not as soon as I commit, I 
I lose that view of, of everything that's that I've been working on. Um, so it hasn't, you know, I'm sure, you know, tomorrow that'll bite me, but um, it hasn't so far. Uh, but yeah, and they, so for me, actually, as far as the, the you know, I, the having a snappy editor is, is, is definitely a plus. What I, I see the, um, I, I found myself, and I, I, I noticed that I was doing this at, after the fact, but basically using the format on save to tell me that everything compiled right. Because if I write, if I'm writing code and I save it, I save, and it, nothing like jitters around just a little bit, in my head, I know I, something's not right here. It's not compiling because it didn't format. And so actually, I, you know, I, I let the tool format the code for me, and that helps me just as a, um, like I said, it, it was totally subconscious that I was doing that and, uh, and keying off of that. But so that, that's, why, that's why I prefer the, the format and save. Uh, so I would say with my, like, leave it there, I know some people at Hacker, I've talked about this before, but they commit a lot because it allows them to like throw away work when it goes bad. I don't have to do that because IntelliJ has that separate local history that lets me go back after like every test run is tagged with like pass, fail, pass, fail, pass, fail. So I can revert uh, easily like people would with git commits normally. And then on the point of the, the formatter tells me if it's broke, that is actually like the main test case I have for that the decompiler is wrong because if I take the decompiled code and paste it and it just splats like way over there, like completely does not format, I'm like, oh, I messed up the decompiler. This isn't real Elixir code. All right, well, let's uh, let's wrap it up. This has been a, a fun discussion. Um, thanks everybody for for jumping in and uh, and kicking these ideas around. Um, Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you enjoy this podcast, then please write us an excellent review and tape it to the nearest utility poll, or better yet, use a stapler. Thank you for uh, joining us on the Alexa Roundtable. Bye. Bye.